Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 121 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is someone whom almost everyone knows or think they know, George Went. No! He was Norm on Cheers, a series that ended its 11-year run in 1993. Yet there he was again as Norm on the Emmy Awards in January, because even 31 years later, everybody knows his name and loves him. I first saw Went in Chicago in the first Second City show I ever attended. It was a review called Freud Slipped Here, and his castmates included future Saturday Night Live stars Tim Kazarinski, Mary Gross, and Jim Belushi. In 2015, I saw Went on stage again with Kazarinski. This time, he was starring in the Northlight Theater production of Bruce Graham's play Funny Man. Went played an aging comedic performer wrestling with his demons. It was an impressive, striking, dramatic performance. But as he tells me here, it also was a tough experience. He prefers to make people laugh. Went grew up as one of nine kids being raised on Chicago's South Side in the Beverly neighborhood. Jason Sudeikis of Ted Lasso and Saturday Night Live fame is his sister Catherine's son. Went sought out Second City because, as he explains, it was the only job I could think of that I wouldn't hate. Why did he get fired from his first stint there? How did he find his footing and get hired back? What happened that time he got booed off stage? How did he, John Malkovich, Dennis Franz, and other Chicago actors get cast as extras in Robert Altman's A Wedding? And why are you unlikely to catch Malkovich on screen? Why did Went and his wife, fellow Second City performer Bernadette Burkett, move to Los Angeles? Why did the cancellation of his first sitcom, Making the Grade, turn out to be a big break? How did Wendt's work with Second City prepare him for an ensemble show like Cheers? How did Wendt beat out John Ratzenberger to get cast as Norm Peterson? Cliff, you haven't had a date in months. Oh, there's a uh, simple explanation for that that you uh, riffraffs probably wouldn't understand. I have impossibly high standards for a woman. Yeah, she has to like you, right? How did Ratzenberger rebound to land the role of know-it-all mail carrier Cliff? How did the energy change when Shelley Long left the Cheers cast and Christie Alley joined? Was Went surprised that of all the Cheers cast members, Woody Harrelson went on to have the most sustained film career? Kelly, 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 how did Went come to co-host Saturday Night Live with filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola, and was that the oddest episode ever? How much did Went enjoy playing superfan Bob Swirsky in those recurring Da Bears sketches? I'm Bob Swirsky, and I want to thank everyone for sending those cards to my brother Bill, who recently had another heart attack. How did he enjoy getting roasted at Second City in 2017? This being Carol Pop, we also talked about music. Went was friends with MC5 guitarist Wayne Kramer, who died recently. How did they become close? How much did Went enjoy Chicago's blues clubs? How revelatory was it for him to arrive in LA and see bands such as X, The Blasters, and Los Lobos? How did he wind up in Michael Jackson's Black or White video? There's all that and much more, so pull up a stool, grab a beer, and please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with George Went. Hey, Mr. Peterson, what's the story? Boy meets beer, boy drinks beer, boy gets another beer. <laughs> Good talking to you, George. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Did you know Wayne Kramer, by the way? I saw that you were, you among many people who love music, were commenting on his passing. Yeah, I did know Wayne. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it truly sucks. Where'd you know him from? 
Oh, you know, uh, <laughs> I sort of uh, just fanboyed him because, uh, and um, you know, it might have been from uh, you or one of your colleagues. What happened was uh, I totally missed the MC5 thing uh, just because I was, you know, not, you know, I was young and, you know, not really uh, paying much attention to anything other than the Beatles or whatever, Rolling Stones. And, um, um, you know, South Sider, you know, I mean, I just, they weren't on my radar. Then, you know, I started hearing this legendary MC5, of course, and I didn't really tune into it. I uh, just heard about it uh, through, you know, you know, rock journalists. Um, and uh, so uh, then one day, uh, Citizen Wayne comes out and uh, I read a terrific review by you or, or somebody. And uh, I was in uh, in Michigan at the time. And uh, uh, we, we had a cottage there for a while. And uh I used to uh, run around, you know, take long walks, you know, for exercise and whatnot, listening to Citizen Wayne, and, and it knocked me out. And um, then I see that he was playing, I believe, at Double Door and uh, in support of the uh, release. So I went to uh, I went to the show, and Wayne saw me, uh, you know, uh, uh singing all the songs like I knew the words and nice. bopping out because I'd, I'd had it on, you know, I just kept replaying the uh, the record. I mean, you know, whatever it was, whatever format it was uh, I had, I guess it was a, a, a Sony Walkman, you know, like a fucking uh, tape, cassette tape. Anyway, uh, so uh, I said hello after the show. Uh, you know, he was very friendly and, and so uh, then I go back to L.A. and he had a little residency at the Mint uh, in support of his uh, epitaph. Um, oh, you know what? They were going to do a uh, live uh, record, live like a motherfucker or something. Huh. Uh, you know, uh, uh, which is a great, great live album. And uh, uh, after a while, I, I realized that every time I went to see Wayne, I would get hammered. And after the show, I'd be like, yeah, it was great, man. You know, like, and uh, he was, of course, very polite. And uh, eventually I said, you know, this, you must think I'm just a horrible drunk. Um, and uh, you want to take a walk or something? And he says, yeah, let's do that. So we started hiking together um, in the hills nearby the, uh, my house. Nice. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, we fell in pretty tight. That's great. Yeah, you know, uh, my ears are still ringing from a show at the Metro, uh, and I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe five or ten. Literally, my, they're ringing right now, my ears. <laughs> and I, I don't regret it one bit. I mean, what happened was I, um, you know, the show was so packed that I couldn't see a goddamn thing. So I, I to, in order to see any even glimpse of the stage, I had to go, far 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 stage right and and i was right near a big bank of uh speakers or amp or whatever you know yeah and so like i'm i'm screwed my ears are just uh, matter of fact i'm gonna see an ear doctor was that was that a wayne kramer show that that happened at it was 
So, you know, you grew up on the South Side. Obviously, you were in Second City. Did you go to a lot of music in Chicago? No. Uh, my version of music in Chicago was, uh, you know, I was so dumb. Um, no. <laughs> don't, 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 no, no negative self-talk, George. Yeah. Well, I did enjoy second generation blues artists, but I didn't know that they were second generation. You know, I really was naive. And um, so there I was, you know, within a mile or two of, you know, probably, you know, the real deal all my life. And then after college and, you know, travels and whatnot, um, after college, I spent a little uh, couple years vagabonding in uh, mostly Europe and, and North Africa. But uh, my, um, uh, so Siegel Schwal at, at a quiet night and uh, that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, um, also there were like show tune kind of guys, not really show tune. They were rockers, but um, it was a theater crowd. Uh, Rocco and the Hat Band would play. Mm-hmm. See, I was working nights. You know, I got off work around midnight. So uh, the Bulls, a place called the Bulls on Lincoln Avenue or just off Lincoln Avenue, right there uh, in Old Town, uh, had music till four in the morning. And uh, Rocco Jans and Annie Hat, those kind of people. And you grew up in Beverly, right? And you were one of nine kids. Were you the funniest one? Jeez. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, after a career in, in uh, I guess probably yes. I mean, I would say proof is in the pudding, but you know, but maybe sometimes you know, maybe you were a late bloomer. Maybe you had like a hilarious sister or something. Well, you know, my my older sister, Kathy, her uh, oldest kid is Jason Sudeikis. So, right. And he's like way funnier than me. Yeah, no, you, you got the you got the uncle nephew thing going on there. <laughs> you could take credit for it that way, though. I'm, I'm his godfather. You're the funny godfather and the funny uncle. So <laughs> one of the ways I feel like I have a connection with you is that you were in the first Second City show I ever saw. Of wow. many Second City shows I've ever seen, but uh, the first one was Freud Slipped Here, which was 1978, um, so I was 14, and I think it was like, you and T- Tim Kazarinski, Mary Gross uh, yeah. were in that cast. I-, I think Jim Belushi had just joined at that point. I think he wasn't in the program, but he was like announced and was in the show, so that's my memory of it. Danny, Danny Breen. And, right, uh, right. Nancy Kelly and Bruce Charco. Was that the one where you did the cowboy sketch? It was. Which which you guys, I think you re- reprised that for the anniversary show like some years ago. Yeah, we reprised it a lot. It's I mean, very funny. It was, uh, it was really um, one of the easiest ones of all time. We just thought the premise was, you know, suggestion was cowboys. And we thought, all right, let's just go out there and just, you know, it'll be like boring. So we'll just, we'll just ride. And then, uh, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, where it goes. And Fred Kaz uh, was kind of do, 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 the whole time, you know. And so we looked so ridiculous. Uh, and Tim had, there were only, we could only find two 
guns, cowboy guns backstage. Uh, so Tim c- couldn't find one. So I, I grabbed one and Jarko grabbed one. And <laughs> Tim uh, grabbed his blow dryer, <laughs> stuck it in his belt. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we thought, well, we'll just keep riding until the audience stops laughing. And then we'll, uh, we'll see where it goes. And, uh, the audience never stopped laughing at the opening tableau with the music under it. So, uh, we just, Fred wrote us a song like the next day. And that was that it was the easiest sketch ever. So were you guys just sort of improvising it or winging it for the first, you know, few times you did it? There wasn't a lot of chit chat, you know, it was, we said nothing. Um, we just kept writing, waited, <laughs> waiting for the laugh to die down, and it just got bigger. The laugh just the longer we rode without talking. Did you did you intend on talking and just thought you know what we just don't even need to? Yeah, kind of, well, we figured we it would go somewhere, but uh, it didn't. You know, so Fred wrote the number, and we just buttoned it up as a musical piece. So, I mean, this is kind of an obvious one, but how formative was that experience at Second City for you? <laughs> everything. There's absolutely everything to me. It's all I ever wanted. And uh, I didn't realize I wanted that till I was about 23. And that's, uh, so I had this very uh, narrow, um, I had no conception of a career in entertainment or you know, any of that. Just I only wanted to be in Second City because it was the only job I could think of that I wouldn't hate. Huh. Had you gone and seen it earlier, I assume? Yeah. Yeah, I'd seen it a few times. And what was it about it that made you think this is what I want to do? Honestly, it was the process of elimination. Um, I, I, I was, as I mentioned, uh, after college, I... <laughs> I was like, man, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know. I don't know. My parents are bugging me, this, that, the other. And this friend of mine says, oh, I know what you do. I go, what? What? He says, you go to Europe. I go, what do you mean? You just uh, get a backpack and, and you know, it's 165 bucks uh, round trip to uh, Luxembourg City, you know, uh, and... <laughs> You know, uh, just uh, just go. You could do that? Yeah. <laughs> so I did it. And uh, you meet all these fellow travelers along the way. And, you know, people taught me, don't buy anything. You know, like we just, just stretch it out as long as you can. So it wound up being a couple of years. Wow. And, uh, um, and during that time is uh, really it's when I sort of, figured out what to do with my life. And that was, um, I, I wouldn't, I refused to do something I would hate. So sales, no, doctor, no, teacher, no, cop, no, fireman, no, even cowboy. I would hate all that. And, cowboy, uh, that was in the mix? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> of course. But uh, And uh, the only thing I could thought of, you know, I saw Second City in, you know, I thought, wow, if I could do that, because it just looked like uh, these, you know, youngish uh, men and women goofing off on stage. I said, if I could do that, 
I bet I wouldn't hate it. And I'm pretty sure they got paid. Mm. <laughs> so so uh, I took workshops and uh, finally, for the first time ever, uh, applied myself, you know, and uh, it worked out for me. What came easiest and hardest to you in, you know, doing improv and creating sketches? Josephine Forsberg was uh, my teacher. And uh, in her classes, it was, uh, you know, you didn't really have to think stuff up. You just had to listen and be present and uh, available. And then when I got hired, you know, because uh, I was, you know, doing okay with Josephine's uh, approach, you know, you really had to come up with ideas. And I was brain dead. I was absolutely, I would stare at the suggestion board and just kind of go like nothing, nothing, nothing. And everyone's, I got an idea. Let's do this, this, and this. And like, I was, thank God, because I mean, left to my own devices, I would have done absolutely nothing because I just had a total blank. So it was the Second City way of working was not ideal for me. Probably would have been better at it or enjoyed improv more. If it was uh, more like uh, the long form that uh, lots of folks are doing, the uh, I.O. style. Well, Second City does it now, too. And uh, or TJ and Dave, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, they're, they're masters. Um, so, you know, I don't expect to be like TJ and Dave. But um, in other words, working w- without uh, cooking something up beforehand. Right. So is it so it was more the sort of like the the kind of conceptualizing it as opposed to being present in the moment. Like you were better in the moment than you were in the sort of like taking a step back and trying to calculate what you were doing. Yeah. Once once we uh, were on our feet on stage, I was uh, fine. But uh, sitting backstage in that little intermission between the, the scripted part of the show and uh, the improv set. Right. Yeah. I, I really, I brought nothing to the table and it, it was probably why I got fired the first time, you know, cause, cause you left and came back, right? Yeah. Yeah. I got fired. They didn't want me to like leave, you know, the building. <laughs> they just thought I was playing it safe and you know, they, they wanted me to loosen up a bit. So I went back down to the touring company, which actually had a, a, a lot of work at the time. So it, it, it was, it was worth doing for sure. And then eventually there was another opening. They hired me back. Can you remember any specific moments where you kind of thought this is exactly where I should be like, kind of like a sort of a reaffirmation moment of, I don't know, like just kind of a high point of the whole thing. Yeah. Honestly, my first uh, curtain call for the first show that I uh, opened and I can't remember which one that was might've been once more with fooling. I found myself uh, to, at the curtain call, uh, far stage left. And I got to, uh, introduce, uh, the late great Fred Kaz. And I just felt like, wow, wow. I am introducing Fred Kaz. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, a you know, he was a, a deity there in my book. Well, everyone's. Did you have any moments there where you were just like, oh, my God, I have to, you know, like sort of your Southwest Airlines ad, got to get away sort of thing? Well, I did get booed off stage once, which was uh, I was ready to walk out the door 
and uh, Bernie uh, Sollins happened to be in the house, and he he rushed backstage. Get back out there, blah blah blah. And uh, you affected them. That's why they booed you, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. Gave me a little pep talk. I was ready to skulk out and never return. <laughs> what did you do to inspire them to boo you? Uh, well, it wasn't just me, but um, I took it very personally. It was a just a tasteless sketch about priests and nuns and uh, sex and, you know, that sort of thing. Don DiPolo, Ann Ryerson, and myself. I think that was it. Just was- the three of us. And, uh, you know, boo, get off the stage. You're was it, was it, was it an improv or was it something that was part it was of the improv. set? Yeah, it was, uh, it was not a good sketch, but I think they were kind of like religious, you know, uh, I think they were taking it sort of personally, but so it was only, you know, three, four people maybe, but you know, they were loud and booing us. You know, it's awful. Yeah. When you're a performer, you notice the ones who are booing. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like that the the Second City experience prepared you specifically to be part of a you know one of the most like ensemble oriented TV shows? Absolutely. You know, there's a there's a few secret weapons uh, Second City veterans uh, have in their quiver. After all that work, and you know, mind you, I was there six years off and on. You know, you get to a point where you you realize that the story or the the scene is the thing. And it's not about you, to quote the late, great Sheldon Patinkin. And uh, you're just serving an idea. And uh, I think when everybody's on that, and then Dell, of course, you know, came up with this uh, theater of the heart and Dell was up my director the entire uh, six years. The legendary um, Dell Close. Yes, the legendary Dell Close. And, uh, you know, he, he said your job is to make your fellow player look as brilliant as possible. And uh, it's not about you, never about you. And and so uh, it, it leads to ensemble building for sure. When you were done at Second City, what were you sort of thinking in terms of where you wanted your career to go after that? Like, were you thinking television? Were you thinking film? Were you thinking it doesn't really matter? I'm just going to go find some good roles. I'd been there about six years and uh, Bernadette, uh, my wife, Bernadette Burkett, you know, she was also a second city player and, uh, you know, also working in theater in Chicago. And uh, she uh, auditioned it for and got a role in a new sketch show and uh, so they sent for her to come to L.A. And I was home with our two kids at the time and, uh, you know, still working at Second City. And she was off for three weeks shooting this pilot. And she came back and she said, you know, I think we ought to consider moving. She had, um, you know, managers and agents and, you know, network people saying, oh, you've got to come out here. You've got to come out. You can't do this from Chicago. You got to move. You got to move. And um, her head was turned. And so when she came back, I, uh, she put the idea in my head. And I said, "All right, let's let's do it." You know, it's time. You can't stay at Second City forever. You know, right? Uh, so uh, we did it. 
of course, her pilot went nowhere. And uh, then I, I subsequently got an, a similar type pilot went nowhere. Yeah. So, but then there we were, two kids, no work. I saw that you had early, I think maybe even uncredited roles in Robert Altman's A Wedding. And I'm wondering if you, I don't know, if you had any sort of initial thoughts about being on movie sets. Altman, um, he was in Chicago shooting uh, A Wedding. And he had a big ensemble cast of uh, really amazingly cool people. Amazing. And he cast some locals amongst them, Jeff Perry uh, from Steppenwolf and uh, Annie Ryerson from Second City. So word went out that they needed, okay, it was a wedding, right? And everybody was family. And uh, they were all at this big mansion in Lake Forest and shooting. And um, the word went out they needed uh, caterers, you know, waiters, waitresses, and whatnot, and security staff. So uh, a bunch of Steppenwolf guys, and I'm not sure if any of the girls did it, but Malkovich did it, and uh, uh, Tim Evans, and um, Al Wilder, Terry Kenny, uh, they all did it, and... um, Danny Breen and I and John Smet from Second City did it. And Dennis Franz did it um, from Organic. Wow. Yeah. And so we were all extras. And, you know, it was fun. We, we did it. It was weeks. Uh, and it was, you know, we had to show up around 7 in the morning, get in, uh, like, little waiter outfits and uh, wait around you know, to be called to the set or not. Some days we would just, you know, just sit there all day. And, but Malkovich, <laughs> he, uh, he had no interest in being in any of the shots or any of the scenes. So he would get in his little waiter outfit, sign in and all that. So he got paid. And then he found, this mansion was enormous. I mean, there was like <laughs> 20 bedrooms or something. And uh, so, and the way up in the top third floor is probably servants' quarters somewhere. He found a bedroom where no one would bother him, and he just went up there and, and slept all day and read Faulkner novels. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so if I rewatch a wedding, I shouldn't be looking for John Malkovich. Probably not. I don't think I even saw myself, uh, who was you know I was eager to get into a shot, but. You know, if I would think of actually of any sort of the directors working back then, Robert Altman would be one particularly equipped to be directing Second City people because he was so kind of loose and improvisation minded already. Yeah, I think he, you know, I think he uh, actually cast Annie because he came to see one of the shows. And, uh, you know, he, he got around, uh, at least during pre-production. Uh he was stuck up in Lake Forest when he was shooting, but he, and during casting, I mean, I think he went and saw Steppenwolf and went and saw, you know, uh, Annie and, and uh, hired her and all that. So Nice. So when you went out to LA, did you have in your mind, you know, television or, you know, TV or movies or whatever came your way? Yeah, I thought it suited me really. Um, I, I didn't really, I just had this, you know, uh, this background in Second City, which was great uh, for me. 
but I didn't have any background in proper theater, like scripted shows or uh, classics or any of that. And um, so, uh, you know, I thought film and TV might uh, suit me rather than a career in the theater. I mean, from Chicago at that point, you know, now you can stay and, and probably, you know, make a living. Um, in those days, you had to either decide New York or L.A. And Bernadette had, uh, you know, already uh, made some inroads in L.A. So uh, we went that What do you think of L.A., by the way? I mean, obviously, you're still there, but uh, was well, it a, was it like, oh, this is nice? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, also, my first impression was, because I had never really gotten west of the Mississippi or anything, you know. Um, it was like, this looks like every cowboy movie I ever watched. And sure enough, they were shooting them, you know, all over the place. All those canyons and whatnot, that's all right here. It's, uh, it's well, not, you know, Monument Valley, not those, but, um, right. you know, yeah. So that was my first impression. And my second impression was, holy crap, I've got this time on my hands, and there's, like, bars with, like, amazing music. So uh, I availed myself of, because uh, I've been stuck in, uh, in you know, Rolling Stones and, and the Beatles, like I said, the Who was about as, uh, as dangerous as I got. And, uh, but then... My kids were punks, and, um, you know, I was looking to uh, get them something for Christmas. And uh, so I went to Tower Records on Sunset, and, uh, and I thought, uh, you know, I, I'm clueless. I'll just ask somebody here, hey, my kids are uh, punks, and, like, what, any ideas? So he goes, yeah, X, uh, Black Flag, uh plugs, um, plim souls, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And I just, I thought, what? on the way home, I listened to it. I was like, what's going on here? What's this? I put it at you and I was like, knock me out. So I, uh, I started going to a lot of live shows, um, you know, uh, with in that era, you know, which included blasters and Los Lobos. Right. And, it was like, wow, it was uh, so much fun. Carol Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Revolution recently introduced a premium lager called Cold Time. It's an all-malt beer featuring Midwest two-row barley, Mexican lager yeast, a touch of German hops, and pure Great Lakes water. It's packaged brewery fresh and never pasteurized. The brewed low and slow badge on the can attests to a slow, lower temperature fermentation that mellows the beer for a smoother, more flavorful sip. Cold Time is available in 12 packs of 12 ounce cans. We're on a sitcom called Making the Grade, which was like April, around like April to May of 82. Was that like your first big break and and you know were you disappointed that that show didn't last it certainly was and uh uh the creator uh writer gary goldberg wonderful fellow uh the late gary goldberg yeah yeah i was i was happy as a clam um it was a good uh good project but it did not get picked up we shot six 
and uh, they didn't pick it up for the fall. It was like a mid mid season trial. Right. Yeah. When you start in April, that's sort of like, all right, let's see how this goes. Yeah, that's what it was. And so the uh, in the meantime, Cheers came up, and um, I wasn't really available because you know I, uh, I was on this other show, different network, CBS. But they're both Paramount shows, so uh, you know they were interested in me doing both at one time, and uh, I guess CBS said no. But I did like the the Cheers guys because um, I'd done Taxi with them, just you know one episode, but it was really really fun. Then, uh, well, they're they're both Paramount shows, right? So uh, Paramount knew what was up, and. Uh, so they said, let's just do Cheers on a pilot basis, and if we if we need to recast, we will. And uh, then the minute, what do you call it, uh, making the grade was not renewed uh, that afternoon, uh, I had the offer for Cheers, so I was extremely lucky. Yeah, I was going to say one of those blessings in disguise is getting your show canceled. Yeah. Um, did you know at the time that it was canceled that it was opening the door for you to do this other show? Not really. I mean, uh, I figured there'd be some interest, but I, I wasn't counting on it you know, until the offer came in. And what did you think of the character of Norm when you first read it? <laughs> well, I think uh, it was a lifetime in the making, uh, you know. I had to look like a guy who wanted another beer <laughs> that I could do. Did you just read it and you're like, wow, this is, this is me. This is easy. Well, there wasn't much to read, honestly. Um, uh, matter of fact, the, the casting session went, uh, went this way. Um, the late great. Once again, so many dead people, sorry. Stephen Kolzak was our uh, original casting director and he, he said, you know, oh, so first, let me just tell you, for the pilot, my agent calls and goes, yeah, you know, those fellas from Taxi Day, they, they want you to do this thing, um, but it's a small role. And I go, oh, okay, uh, how small is it? She goes, well, it's it's just one line. I go, ooh. She says, you know, come to think of it, it's one word. And then she goes, oh, you know what? It's actually one syllable. And... Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, what, what's what's the word? Beer. And uh, the original bit was uh, the tag of the pilot. Shelly was supposed to um, be saying, uh, I would come in and Shelly would go, hi, my name is Diane. I'll be your waitress. Uh, well, I'm not really a waitress. I'm an academic, this, that, and the other. And she talks for like a page and a half. And then she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I should probably take your order. What can I get you? And I go, beer. And she, <laughs> goes, and she goes, beer. Perfect. And that was the end of the episode. And so then we flash forward to Stephen Kolsak saying, you know, beer is, uh, that's, you know, it's not enough to read. Um, try this other uh, role. And it was uh, George. So I, I, I looked at it and I, uh, I gave it a read. And uh, it was the guy who, you know, just wanted one more beer and was not going to go home. And uh, that then when I got it, it became, um, no, you know, they changed the name to Norm because they didn't want it confused with my name. 
So that's that story. So, so the beer guy was not Norm. It was just some random. It was George. Yeah. It was George. Yeah. And then I found out like 20 years later, I found out maybe like 10 years ago that um, they had me in mind. I didn't know that until I was doing a, the Charles brothers and Jim Burroughs were doing um, a symposium at uh, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, and um, they invited me to, to be there as a surprise guest. And so um, I'm sitting in the wing on a stool <laughs> in the wing and uh, listening to them because I love those guys. And, you know, that. And the, an audience member goes, now, did you have anybody in mind uh, when you were casting Cheers? And they go, oh, God, no. No, we, uh, we saw everybody in Hollywood and New York. We saw every combination of actors. It was months and months of meticulous casting. And then they go, but uh, Rhea, yeah, we did have Rhea in mind. And George. And I was like, the fuck? I'm really kind of glad I never knew that. Uh, where did where did they know you from? Taxi. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did this bit as um, Louis had a cockroach in his cage. Danny DeVito character had a cockroach that he was, you know, feuding with at war with, and uh, I I played an exterminator who came to uh, take care of the problem and uh, didn't go well. But the best, the best story is Ratzenberger came in to uh, audition for Norm, uh, I guess George at the time. And uh, he could tell it was going nowhere. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he didn't have a lot of L.A. credits. He was based in the U.K. And um, even though he's from New England, uh, but he was based in the U.K. And he came in and, uh, and it wasn't going well. And then he was walking out. I mean, literally, I know they literally figured of but he literally had one foot out the door and he popped his head back in and said, do you have a bar? know it all. And they're like, no, what do you mean? And he started improvising as uh, the Cliff Clavin character. Nice. And they hired him. He created his own role in theory. I mean, you know, they obviously created it, but you know, that's, that's uh, some chutzpah. Yeah, and he was in the pilot as Cliff then, right? Yeah. Did you also sort of pick up on at that point that you two were sort of going to be each other's sidekick? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it didn't... Look, we had no... You know, you can't have preconceived notions. Right. Because uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a shapeshifter until, you know, uh, things settle in, you know, but um, we were the only two customers in the in the cast. So, at what point did you think, "Oh, this is going to be, you know, like a long term gig"? It wasn't until Cosby came on in season three. Like we started to pick up a little. Well, first of all, we uh, we won a bunch of Emmys our first year, uh, best show and best writing, best directing. Shelley won for best actress. I mean, it's crazy. So we we were we were sort of a hit, but the numbers still weren't there. And until Cosby showed up in season three, and he just right out of the box, it was an enormous hit. 
And uh, so we just rode his coattails until we became our own thing. You had that powerhouse uh, lineup on Thursday nights. Yeah. At what point did you start feeling like this this character of Norm was going to sort of stick with you for a long time as well? You know, that people are going to associate you with him. I don't know. It might have been like, uh, I don't know, right around then, maybe season three, season four. I don't know what, you know, the numbers become a blur. But um, I remember walking uh, down the street in New York and uh, a garbage truck rolled by and blasted his horn. Hey, no! And uh, I thought, wow, cool. It's... <laughs> Off. Is there anything you could point to that you think is sort of the reason? I mean, that show was on for 11 years. Um, and obviously, I mean, people are still referring to it now and it's been off the air for 31 years. Um, like, what what is it about that show that just made it like this cultural touchstone? Well, first of all, you know, it was obviously very well written. That's, you know, the primary thing. You know, the, Paramount had it going on at the time. You know, they had all that Gary Marshall shows right down the, the road. And, um, you know, uh, NBC was just the right spot. You know, it was sort of the, he also ran network until they handed it over to Grant Tinker and Brandon Tartikoff. Uh, and they just, uh, you know, left shows on the air for a change instead of, you know, just canceling. Developing, canceling, developing, canceling. Little side note: uh, Brendan Tartikoff was in my first workshop at Second City. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then he disappeared one day, and uh, I guess what what, what happened was uh, he was working at the ABC O and O and WLS, you know, TV, and um, then. Uh, Fred Silverman, I guess, called him to New York. And so I'm like, what, what happened to Brandon? Oh, well, I had no idea that he was a TV executive. Um, <laughs> so it came in handy. He had good taste. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a, sort of a wild theory on that. Okay, the baby boom generation, uh, you know, where I'm right smack in the middle of it. And so is Ted and Rhea and John and Shelley and uh, the writers, everybody, you know, so um, we were all turning 30, 31, 32, that sort of, you know, thing. And so people our age were uh, kind of having families and kind of having responsibilities with jobs and whatnot and really couldn't duck out to the bar uh, as often as they used to in their 20s, say. I don't think I've ever verbalized this before, but I've thought it, you know, um, that maybe, you know, it, it was a small percentage, a small piece of the pie was just, ah, uh, yeah, I can't get out to the bar, but I can duck into cheers for a half hour. Huh. Well, that's an interesting theory. I mean, like, like that show debuted in fit in, in 82 and went off the air in 93, so, you know, 2024, so that's 31 years. So if you go back like 31 years from when it started, that's like 1951. Like, it's hard to think of, you know, like cultural culture in 1982, anyone kind of looking back as sort of fondly 
at anything from 51, I don't know, like, I guess like I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners, I think debuted then, but, but there's something that felt very sort of like of another era. Whereas I feel like Cheers, maybe because I'm the right age for her too. I mean, you were just on the Gram, you're just on the Emmy Awards, you yeah. know, and people get the reference 31 years after the thing went off the air. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it really kind of remarkable. You know what? Maybe one thing, it was shot really well. Sort of the style at the time was more of the Norman Lear sort of a video, you know, as opposed to the film. And, um, you know, we had Richard Silbert. Uh, I'll go late grade again. Uh, yeah. Richard Silbert, uh, production designer. You know, for big ass fancy movies, big. Yeah, he was like an Oscar winner, okay. I think. Yeah, multiple Chinatown, right? You know, blah. I mean, he's got a. He's probably one of the most respected production designers, certainly of his era, and um, he did that. And uh, you know, the photography was it. Uh, it plays still plays pretty well uh, technically, which was you know good foresight by them because you know first things were film and then they turned to video and then uh, now that video looks kind of crap in hd and uh the film is uh still kind of plays in hd yeah there's less of a timestamp on stuff that was filmed than the stuff that was videotaped yeah how big of a disruption was it when shelly long left and uh, then kirstie alley came in obviously <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it totally sucked that Shelley moved on. Uh, and for my money, uh, you know, the, the, the best years were the Sam Diane years, um, just because the show was really focused as a romantic comedy. But, you know, germane to that is that... Uh, romantic comedy is and always will be boy meets girl boy gets girl boy loses girl boy gets girl back and after that it becomes a domestic comedy and uh glenn and les and jimmy burrows they weren't nobody was interested in a, in a domestic comedy so there wasn't a whole lot of uh, ways to go forward with um sam and diane apart from them getting together and that was that but shelly um, you know, she was so amazing, so great at, at that role. You know, the, the movie offers were coming in hot and heavy and, uh, she thought maybe best to move on, but it kind of freed up the, uh, writers from being pigeonholed in that, you know, Sam Diane story. So, uh, to me, those will always be the golden years, um, but uh, it was uh, really super fun to uh, do the the uh, Kirsty years. Um, you know, she was just so much fun. I mean, she was just you know night and day, like every way different uh, from Shelley. And um, you know what? Uh, I'll never forget her first uh, show. Uh, we were sitting around having dinner. Uh, it was sort of between the dress rehearsal and and shooting our, our first show with Kirsty. And uh, we were, you know, Ted and Rhea and me and, and uh, Woody and John, you know, we're like, geez, we should maybe get Kirsty something, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we blew that. Oh, man. 
oh, Jesus, I can't do it. I got to do this and I got to do that. And so John and I go, yeah, all right, we'll try to find a gift or something. So I get, I get in a car with John and uh, I might've been driving. You know, we, uh, we're going down Melrose and Paramount there and, uh, you know, trashy lingerie, and no, we can't do that. And, you know, like, mm. uh, all these goofy Melrose stores. And uh, we had no idea, no inspiration, uh, what the hell to get. And, um, you know, flowers would be too stupid. And and then we go by this big five sporting goods. And John goes, big five. And I laugh, yeah, right. He goes, you want to buy her? A sh- you want to buy her a shotgun? And <laughs> I probably laughed for like five minutes. And and we went in. We bought her a fucking shotgun. Wow! And um, she loved it. And uh, the cast, the rest of the cast, was just horrified. <laughs> uh, so the good news is, Kirsty loved it, and that we have a great story now that we can tell forever. And uh, also the good news was the cast is never going to send us out to shop for gifts again. There you go. Would she like bring, you know, pheasant to the set that she'd, you know, shot with a shotgun you guys had given her? No, but she had it, I think, on her mantle and, you know, yeah, she was proud of it. Mounted a deer head above it just to look like <laughs> she'd, she'd been putting it to good use. <laughs> What was what was different about the way you know Shelley and she kind of brought what the the energy that each brought to the show? You know, it's it's just literally night and day. It's uh, you know Shelley was very uh, very perfectionist and very very hard worker, um, and you know everyone else was sort of very loosey goosey except for BB. She's a hard worker too. Um, so uh, they had that in common. Uh, but, you know, the rest of us would be like, yeah, Woody might not even be in the continental United States. You know, does anyone have any idea where the hell Woody is? And, so it's, yeah, I thought I blah, blah, blah. He'd be in South Africa or something on the weekend. What? <laughs> but um, Kirsty was uh, loosey-goosey and... Uh, out of her mind and um, in a good way mm. and uh, had animals, you know, like just bringing like, you know, fucking donkeys or llamas, you know, <laughs> that nursing back to health. I mean, she did, she had like a zoo at her house and she took personal care of each and every one of them and, you know, massaged them all day. And <laughs> So she bring llamas to the set? No, I, I I'm I'm uh, I reached a bit, but um, she would bring things you wouldn't uh, expect. Uh, it wasn't some Paris Hilton dog. <laughs> I mean, something about you know television, and especially a show like Cheers, where the whole thing is about being welcoming, and you is that is that people develop this relationship with you, and I assume this is what you've been living with for a long time, where they, you're in their living rooms. Back then, TV wasn't so splintered, so really a lot of people were watching you every week, and they feel this familiarity, and you know they feel like they get to know you. Is it Was that a 
fun thing for you, that sort of sense of familiarity when someone would see you and they sort of felt like you knew they knew you, even though you don't know them? Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, fun, you know, but it, it, it's certainly something that I was happy to roll with because it was my lot in life. I mean, oh, woe is me. I'm on a hit sitcom that where people, you know, are super, super friendly and happy to meet me and, you know, um, you know, seem like they're old friends. Um, so it, it's not exactly a death sentence, you know, uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty great. I think that one of the things that's also interesting is that when people are, you know, become really familiar on television, it's harder for them to sort of have these big film careers. And I think Shelley Long maybe found that out to some extent. I mean, I, it's also just fluky. Um, but I always found it fascinating that of of the Cheers cast, the one who seemed to do the most movie stuff was Woody Harrelson. And watching that show, you wouldn't think, oh, he's he's the guy who's going to be the movie guy. Yeah, you're right. But, uh <laughs> You know, w underestimate Woody at your own peril. It guy is a flat stud. I mean, he's just smart, really thoughtful, and you know, he's uh, he's all that. I mean, he never stops writing, or whether it's music or a play, or you know, he he's and you know, he's also like. A fucking gamer you know like he he like he wins he wins at everything mm. like he would beat you at leg wrestling he would beat you at chess <laughs> he would beat you at poker he would beat you at pranks he would you know he's just like he's gonna beat you and mm. uh, um, if your expectation is that he's not gonna be a movie star uh, you know where that goes. Right. I just read this. I didn't remember seeing it, but you hosted SNL with Francis Ford Coppola one week. Yeah. It, uh, it, it was great. I mean, it was, you know, peculiar. It was the weirdest episode ever. Um, Francis was directing as well as uh, co-hosting, I guess with me. And uh, he was directing the episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Workshops all week, and you know we we worked on all the sketches. But um, you know the the opening was like no sax music, no applause signs, no audience warm up. It, uh, it was just me walking onto a bare stage, the band not there, um, and uh, just this eerie Philip Glass music. He was a musical guest. Hmm playing in the background, no applause, nothing. And there, there's a super over the uh, screen. Um, Francis Ford Coppola presents next card. Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> Saturday Night Live. Uh, next card. Starring George Went. Next card. As the host. Next card. Uh, uh, time now. Place New York City. And uh, I go into my monologue, and the audience is going, What in the fuck? <laughs> I go into my monologue, and uh, 
Francis swoops in on uh, one of those cranes that, that they actually use those. Um, you know, you rarely see a director up on a crane, um, but, uh, you know, camera operators are usually up. <laughs> but in he comes, like, ooh, right into the shot uh, on the crane. goes, uh, George, George, I don't believe that. Not, uh, uh, you got to try it again. And uh, uh, I said, Francis, the... Uh, <laughs> The audience already heard the joke, you know, uh, it's not going to, he goes, audience, try to think of something funny in your childhood. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, it was a really weird episode with all kinds of shit like that. And the ending, instead of standing at home base, you know, waving goodbye with the sour sax music and all that, I was, uh, it was a cut to me out on 6th Avenue. Um trying to hail a taxi. How did you become paired with him for that? Because that seems like they didn't they didn't have a lot of guest directors, I wouldn't think. I mean, it was what, like 85, 86, something like that? Yeah, it was Lauren's first year back. Uh, he took, a, you know, he was away for... Like five years, ever, I think. Ever saw years, yeah. The Gene Dumanian. Yeah, so it was Lauren's uh, first year back, and it was just, uh, you know, it was... <laughs> It had a peculiar cast, very talented, but, you know, peculiar cast, Randy Quaid, uh, Robert Downey Jr., Joni Cusack, that cast, uh, Anthony Michael Hall. And, uh, you know, it was floundering a little bit. So he brought in Francis. <laughs> it was the season finale. Uh, wow. Well, that's, I'm going to have to dig that one out if I can, if it's findable. Um, it, I think, you know, what's funny is, because, uh, Tim Kazarinsky, obviously, is a, an old, old, old pal. And uh, his shows, his episodes, five years worth or whatever he was, uh, those are not readily available because... Uh, yeah, the Dick Ebersol years, are, are they've been, like, purged from the memory or something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, he and he and Mary Gross, your castmates, were, they were both on those, those years, yeah. I think. Yeah, and uh, as I was gonna say, you just missed by like a year being able to reunite, uh, you know, your second city cast, and then anyway, then you came back as as the Bears super fan, and I don't think you were on the first one of those, but you you've certainly become sort of synonymous yeah. with the. Uh, oh, it was Joe Mantegna uh, who uh, originated, uh, you know, was my brother Bill, uh, who's uh, you know suffering from yet another heart attack. I think it's like, well, how many is that? You know, like, that's a baker's dozen. Uh, <laughs> Joe was, you know, probably busier than me. Because <laughs> uh, actually he came back and, and joined us on uh, several occasions. But uh, yeah, it, it sort of took off more as a me thing. Part of what's great about the super fans is that it's so Chicago specific. Oh, and, yet, and yet people love it like that 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 it worked because you because you could make the argument that's like we'll try this once and the people in chicago will laugh and everyone else will be like what the hell is that but it it worked it's my opinion that the richest uh uh comedy is specific and it kind of almost doesn't matter um remember danny Aykroyd did this thing when he was with second city uh he did this uh Thing where he described his route as a he was a bus driver in Toronto or something. 
up there to young, down young to something. Just like nothing but Toronto references. Figuring, I thought, you know, nobody would laugh, but, you know, its specificity is uh, is uh, great. I mean, David Mamet, you know, when he, he was doing the, the funnier Chicago instead of the Cambridge uh, years, um, you know, it was very specific Chicago. And right. Hilarious. Yeah. After... 11 years on Cheers, it, you know, how, how was it jumping back into the sitcom world with the George Went show? And, you know, did you enjoy that experience? Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it, you know, um, sadly it flopped, but, um, uh, Pat Finn is, uh, Bernadette was directing, uh, uh, second city show. And, uh, we were looking for somebody to play my younger, much younger brother. And, uh, wound up being, this guy that I saw on the show Bernadette directed at Second City and uh, named Pat Finn. And, you know, he's just hilarious guy. And uh, so that was really, really fun. Lifelong friendship. Peter Tolan, great, pretty great writer. Uh, you know, it, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> it's uh, alchemy. Right. You know, you can get all the, even the Charles brothers and Jim Burroughs have, flopped on subsequent uh uh efforts you know it's just uh, it ain't easy no that thing where everyone wants you in their their living room and also times change i mean people's tastes change in terms of the kind of sitcoms that are that are going on um you know if you launch something like cheers now would it work i mean they're doing frazier now which i haven't even seen but that seems a little i i don't know i don't want to say anything because i haven't watched it but but I sort of feel like I don't. I don't know if I'm. You know, the fact that I haven't watched it is maybe a sign. You know, it's like, like ah, that was that was that was for then, and you know, now I'll watch. You know, something else maybe. Yeah, you know, I, I used to uh, be a champion of the uh, multi-camera format because it's really the most like theater. I mean, it's proscenium and it's reliable if the writing is good, but. Um, there might be something to the the fact that that format might be a little tired. You know? I think it's I, I, you watch what's considered comedies now, and half of them aren't comedies. Like I love the bear, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put that in our comedy category. You know, when I was I was backstage at the Emmys and everything, all this, you know, the winners, the big winners, were the bear and beef, and I thought, man, I'm confused because the bears about. <laughs> Beef and beef is about something else. I don't get it. What the hell? Right. Um, how was it going back to the Emmys? By the way, was that fun? <laughs> well, it's just good to see Teddy and Kels and John and Rhea. Shelly, uh, Shelly didn't didn't uh, come, but and Woody was uh, shoot, um, he's in a play in London, uh, so he couldn't make it. Either. So it was great to see everyone. And, uh, man, I just saw Barbie, finally. Hmm. Rhea, so great. Wow. Oh, right, right, yeah. She's Ruth. Yeah. Um, and I saw you on stage, uh, Northlight's production of Funny Man. And that right. was you and Tim back together on stage. And you were tremendous in that show. That was, like, a really great show. And, and I'm wondering if that was... I don't know like how satisfying that was for you. Cause it was pretty dark 
character in which you're, you know, you know, your character sort of lamenting your, your guy who has this uh, catchphrase, wowza, and, and, and it dug pretty deep on that. And I'm wondering what that was like. I'm very happy to have done it. BJ uh, Jones directed it and he, he brought me into some, you know, really dark uh, corners. You know, I have a lot in common with the, uh, the character. Hopefully I'm not an asshole like he was. <laughs> but, uh, and it was great fun to play with Tim, as always. But honestly, you know, it's tough. I, I like, uh, you know, I like to get laughs there. So. Yeah, I mean, you're in a movie, you're in a play called Funny Man, so you think, hey... But it was it was it was not it it was pretty you you did have to go to some dark places in that show night after night. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was tough. Good piece though, but you know, it's just my, I'd rather get laughs. <laughs> did you enjoy doing hairspray? Oh my god, <laughs> Edna! Uh, it was just ridiculous. It was the happiest show in town, and um, it was really 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 fun. Uh, so, uh, that was a blast, but, you know, uh, between Edna and, uh, this role of Ivan in art, uh, those were two really fun uh, plays for me. You know, after having not done scripted stuff on stage earlier in your career, was that, uh, was that an interesting phase for you to go through later on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, hey, I suck at improv, so why not? You know, like, uh, I was always much happier uh, in the scripted portion of uh, Second City shows. So, yeah, if if the script is great, I mean, uh, nothing better. <laughs> How do you like doing The Masked Singer? It's really something, you know, the, uh, I mean, it is literally all bells and whistles it's just flashing lights and bells and whistles and dancers and you know it was kind of a blur tough to watch uh (laughs) how was the costume did you enjoy it (laughs) it was uh just absurd i couldn't even uh i couldn't i couldn't make it down the hallway it was so big and i couldn't move not that I'm, uh, you know, going to be out there dancing, but you know, I couldn't even. I was sitting because I, like, I couldn't see. All I could see was people's feet. Um, it's peculiar. Now, is that something where your agents like, hey, George, I got this great idea, the mask singer, or are are you like, you know, I'd love to do that, or do they just come to you and say, hey, are you, would you be interested? You know, they do these themes, and um, the theme was uh, '80s. So, uh, there you go. You know, uh, I'm, uh, you know, associated with the eighties. And, uh, so it was just an offer and, uh, you know, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. There you go. This is right after whatever COVID or, you know, and something I needed to, I needed to scratch. So what else do you have coming up? You know, just, just uh, like nothing really. I mean, you know, there's, Mildly uh, interesting at this point, you know, scripts. And uh, who knows, uh, you know, if any of them are going to see the light of day. Solid things, nothing. Got any other books in the works? 
<laughs> Smoking with Woody. You got you got drinking with George, a Barstool Professionals Guide to Beer. So yeah, smoking with Woody, that's the next one. You it's have funny. to do that one together. Going out, going out with Wood, you know, uh people are always Hey man, buy me beers and Woody beers and then and then but then they go up to him and they go, Here man, my homegrown, you know, like they hand him a little so yeah. Anyway, that's kind of fun. How many how many free beers have you had in your life? Got to be hundreds. I don't know. So it's another that's another thing for choosing a role. You know, choose the role where people are going to give you something that you like. <laughs> yeah, I rewatched for the first time in forever the Michael Jackson black and white video, right. where, where you're the bad dad at the beginning, and then you get blasted into the middle of the desert. How did that come about? And, and did you ever actually meet Michael Jackson during all of that? I mean, you don't. You, your scenes are with Macaulay Culkin and not with him. So, um, yeah, Michael was uh, on board, you know, the entire time he was producing it with John Landis. And uh, you know, I was really. You ever see that sketch on SNL uh, where um, Prince was? Someone was trying to talk to Prince, and Beyonce had her. You know, as Maya Rudolph would whisper in Prince's ear. I expected something weird like that, and uh, he was completely regular. You know, couldn't have been nicer, warmer, and uh, yeah, it was just an offer. But I did have a funny story about it. I hope it's not uh, sensitive. Go for it. Yeah. Well, uh, um, so Jim Burroughs uh, has three daughters and no boys, and they were like maybe five, seven, and nine or something at the time. And uh, everyone was watching it because it premiered, uh, Black and White premiered, I want to say either right before or right after Cheers on a, sort of a worldwide broadcast. Uh, <laughs> so, no boys. So, um, so one of us, after the watching the video, uh, one of the little girls says, Daddy? Why does Michael Jackson hold his vagina all the time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was the long version of it. It's funny because like both of them are on YouTube and there's like the short version that just ends when the morphine thing ends. And then the long one just has the whole little extra dance where he's grabbing his crotch. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, this was like a little disturbing at the time. <laughs> The other thing I didn't ask you about was your second city roast, which, uh, you know, Tim Kazarinski had said, why did they pick the nicest guy in the world to roast? Is Mother Teresa dead? Which at the time, which at the time, I don't think she was. So how was, how was that? I mean, that was obviously a fundraiser for Gilda's Club and the Second City Alumni Fund. But I think you're the only person who's been roasted at Second City, that, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it was, it was a blast. Um, I was in tech uh, for an, a new musical and at Bucks County Playhouse, and so it was like really kind of hectic to get there and get back in time for a rehearsal the next day. But um, um, <laughs> but it was really really fun, and uh, there were some great stories. I loved uh, Bob Odenkirk uh, said, "You know, George Went is responsible for my career," and people laugh. And he goes, "No, no, it's true." Uh, when I was in college, I went to Second City, and I was blown away. And I remember thinking to myself, this is amazing, but 
I could never do that. And uh, then a couple years later, I went back to Second City and I saw George Went. I thought, oh, hell, I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty good. (laughs) Did you roast anyone at the end or did you just say thanks for coming? I said, you know, I tried a couple of lame jokes and I go like, all right, clearly insult comedy is not my uh, long, long suit. But I did bring a friend and I uh, introduced Smigel. Uh, but I mean, he, he was he was just behind the podium and it was just triumph. He started tearing everybody a new asshole. Nice. And then in the middle of triumphs, uh, it, uh, Chris Rock walked in. Uh, walked on stage uh, he had just finished at the Chicago Theater <laughs> and uh, he came over so that was sweet that's it for episode 121 of Carol Pop thanks so much to George Went for sharing such great stories about his incredible career his 2009 book Drinking with George a Barstool Professional's Guide to Beer remains widely available you can find Cheers to stream as well Hero Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who deserves a beer or two himself. We encourage you to support Carol Pop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Now you could become a Carol Pop friend for a mere $24. Contribute at carolpop.com and I'll read your name on a future episode. We appreciate you all. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.